Okay, so first of all, we're reading from uh, Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 16. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land, like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father, because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so, from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. But instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for, for them. And then continuing. Looking a bit, and now to um, verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, 
God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Thank you, Rian. You might feel that was a bit of a, a marathon, but she did leave out quite a few verses in the middle. But as you'll see, um, the writer of the Hebrews wanted to take the whole big story of God and pick out so many different characters to show what faith looks like. But I wonder, who are your heroes of faith? Or who is there in your life, perhaps now, or maybe looking back, who's helped you along the road, maybe gave you time, gave you some teaching, some advice, maybe shared their testimony with you? Who is there? I can think back and think of the big names, like going to a Billy Graham uh, event when I was quite young. I can think of Ishmael and the glories every year at Spring Harvest, helping me to learn what it was to praise God and to trust him. But I can also think of a lovely lady called Zoe Bowerman from my church, and I used to stop in at her house on the way home from school every Tuesday, and she'd have baked little fairy cakes, and she opened the Bible, and we ate cakes, and she just chatted about the Bible to me. And she is one of my heroes of faith. And she did nothing that anybody else would know about, but to me, that was really important. And I could see from her life what faith looked like maybe when I was a bit older. The heroes of faith that we might have, or that might be listed in the Bible here in chapter 11 of Hebrews, they are not perfect. Okay? We are not talking about idols. We're not talking about putting people on a pedestal and, and saying, oh, if only I could be like them. There is only one person whom we should be putting on a pedestal and declaring to be perfect and aiming to be just like him, and that's Jesus. Everybody else in our lives has feet of clay. That includes us. So we have those people. Perhaps we can name a whole host of people in our lives, or maybe just one or two. And we can remember them. We can be thankful. We might be able to express our thanks to them, even years later. But... They aren't without flaws. And life isn't always roses and, and sweetness and light for everybody just because they're a follower of Jesus. In fact, as we look ahead, we'll see that all too clearly. But we have here in Romans 11, like a roll call of people of faith. And if you have a Bible or you've got your phone um, app available, it is useful to be able to look through this. I'm not going to have time. I thought when I started preparing for today, I thought, it's great, I'll dig into the Old Testament with you. We'll look at loads of the stories and backfill, uh, fill in the gaps and who did what and why it was that it was so significant and why they are heroes of faith. And Actually, I want to just throw that out to you as a challenge. You do the work. You know what we've been doing as we've gone through Hebrews. We've, we've heard, we've read hints of stuff in the Old Testament and sometimes I've dug around with you and we've looked at that together. Today, I just say, if you've got time and you can make time to do this, why don't you pick one of these names that is referred to in this chapter? Go away and have a look at their story. See how, what faith looked like in their life. Because the writer of the Hebrews is convinced that all of these people that he names are people who demonstrated faith. But funnily enough, this morning... I'm not going to do that with you because I kind of feel that God's led me in a slightly different direction. But one thing I do want to be clear before we go in that direction is that the faith that we're talking about is an active faith, right? It's a living faith. We're not talking about simply subscribing to a world faith or a, a worldview or having intellectually 
agreed with some propositions. Um, we're not talking about that as if it's an abstract thing separate from living our daily lives. Our faith has to be a lived faith, a faith that is active, a faith that makes a difference. Each of these characters in the chapter 11, they did something that the writer of Hebrews can point to and say, that's what faith looks like. By faith, so-and-so did such-and-such. By faith this, by faith that. It can't just be words. It can't even just be a heart thing, as if faith is something entirely private. It can't be. If you look ahead at James, the letter from James, he writes in the second chapter of his letter, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Strong words to those of us who believe absolutely in faith by grace alone, that we can't work our way to heaven, there's no way we can do stuff and be good enough to be acceptable to God. That's not how faith works. That's not how salvation works. It is literally by placing our trust in Jesus, believing what he did at the cross um, means that we can receive forgiveness. That belief is what changes everything, is what brings salvation. And yet, if that is all we hold on to, somehow it sort of withers. It becomes something anemic because our faith is supposed to be something growing, something that influences every aspect of life and that we, others should be able to point to us and say, oh, that person there, I can see what faith looks like. By faith, so-and-so did such and such. Can someone say that about your life? Faith should inform our choices, our actions, and our decisions. And I find it, I find it somewhat difficult to hear when people like maybe holding um, public positions like politicians who are asked, and is your faith going to have any influence in what you do? As if that would be something that you ought to run away from and, and say, oh, no, no, I don't worry, I won't let my faith affect what I do in Parliament. I'm sorry, what? We all have a faith position. Even if our faith position is that there is no God, that is still a faith position which will influence everything that we do. It will, ex it will give uh, application to, uh, to the scientist who discovers a wonderful new um, fact about the world and how it works. Your faith will influence what you feel about that, how you respond to that. When Gray is looking through the microscope, his faith doesn't tell him what's happening in the microscope. That, that's brilliant. That's discovery. That's science. That's fantastic. His faith is what then says, God, you're amazing for having done that. Just as an atheist, their faith position, we'll look at that and say, well, that's incredible. Fancy chance doing that. You know, it's just your faith is going to influence how you work, how you act. If you're selling cars, just looking at someone, anyone, if you're selling cars, your faith will influence how you speak to people, how you do your dealings, how honest you are, how you see people in God's image who walk into your car showroom. If you're teaching your classroom, if your faith doesn't influence how you teach, then what does your faith look like? Your faith is how you re react and respond to your colleagues, how you relate to 
classmates in school, how you respond to questions, how you, just how you are. Our faith has got to be active, it's got to be living, and it has to inform what we do. It cannot be something that can um, somehow be hidden away or confined to the private sphere. And the public sphere is somewhere that has no faith influence? Well, that's not true. That's a delusion. Because everybody who walks into that public sphere has a faith position. And it will be influencing what is said and done. Faith is about relationship at its heart. N.T. Wright speaks about this passage, and particularly about this first verse that the writer of the Hebrews sets out what he believes faith to look like. He says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And N.T. Wright says that faith and hope are closely linked in this book of Hebrews. That faith is looking at God and trusting him for everything. And hope is looking at the future and trusting God for it. So faith is looking at God and trusting him for everything, whereas hope is looking at the future and trusting God for it. But looking at the future is an interesting, interesting notion. I think we live in a time of myopia. As somebody who is short-sighted, I know what it means to have your glasses taken off you, and then literally all I can see, uh, oh, I can see it now. That's how short-sighted I am. All of you are just a fuzzy blur at the moment. My horizon of sight without my glasses is very short. But with my glasses, thankfully, you all spring into perfect clarity, and that's just lovely. No, believe me, it's lovely, Anna. <laughs> Don't apologize, especially if you're smiling. Gosh, that's just wonderful. And without my glasses, I wouldn't see a thing. But what I'm saying is that our horizon, our, our, our depth of vision, whatever analogy you want to, to bring to this, we are in danger in our society at the moment of being so short-sighted that if it doesn't happen right now, it hasn't happened at all, and it's a failure. If it doesn't happen in my lifetime, then somebody is to blame, and somebody's let me down. We are used to the, the ground force sort of um, transformation, aren't we? Where in a weekend... A plot of land turns from being an absolute disaster area into something absolutely beautifully manicured and, and gorgeous, and these fully grown trees are there, and the planting and the flowers are beautiful. We're used to seeing that, and that's what we expect. And I think that sometimes influences how we view our faith as well. That if God doesn't do something now, if he doesn't answer our prayer now, then something's gone wrong. Let me tell you that your prayer that you become more like Jesus is going to be answered over a very long time and actually won't fully be answered until we've passed through death and we are given our new bodies and we are transformed to be like Jesus, to be the person that God created us to be without all of that struggle with sin and with temptation and with failure and, and all of that. That's a prayer that we should be praying. God, make me more like Jesus. But we don't, ex I hope you've understood that you won't expect it to be fully answered in a weekend. I'll just let you in on that little secret in case you were hoping. 
However, he's with you every step of the way, and if you open yourself up more and more to him, he will do more and more of the transformation work. But it's not instantaneous. And we have to be careful not to assume that if we don't get our answer to prayer right now, that God has failed us and he doesn't keep promises. When I was reading through this list of people and all that they were, they'd done, and the reason why they were held up as an example of faith, it's quite surprising that the writer of the Hebrews uses this as a way to teach us that actually they didn't see a full answer to their prayers or their, the promises that were made, that their faith was in God who'd made this promise and they believed God for the promise, yet every one of them died before God's promise of a saviour came. Jesus wasn't going to come for hundreds of years after their lifetimes. Yet they believed. And they lived by that faith. We are too short-sighted. And I think we need to have an understanding of, of God and of his purposes of being, as being bigger than us. And a timescale that goes far beyond our lifetime. Gone are the age, ages when generations would work on a cathedral. No, not one of them actually living to see the final product, the final beautiful um, construction, but giving their lives nonetheless to this project. We don't live like that anymore. And yet as Christians, there is a challenge to have our, our, our vision, our horizon for sight being pushed further than we are comfortable with. Because God wants to do something in us that is going to take longer than your lifetime. And is that me saying, uh, it's like a cop-out, oh, well, don't worry, if God hasn't answered in this life, he'll answer it in the next. Well, it might sound like that. And sometimes we have to come back to God and say, and wrestle with him, and, and, and pray more earnestly for things. But... But if this life is all there is, then our faith isn't worth a whole whole lot, is it? When we read at the end of this chapter, of chapter 11 here, we read about some amazing people and what they did, that they, uh, they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword amazing people, those are the ones that you could really look up to. Those are the ones you're going to copy and build your life on. And then in the next breath, he says, some others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. There's persecution, there's ill-treatment, not just glory and victory amongst the heroes of faith. These were all, the victorious as well as the persecuted, the victims as well as the victors, these all were commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised ultimately. But they're all commended for their faith. And you might say, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Yeah, that's true. Do you remember Peter on the beach with Jesus, just after Peter had had that sort of reconciliation moment with Jesus. And they're walking along, and and Jesus explains to Peter, or at least hints, that he too will be martyred. And then Peter looks over his shoulder at John and says, yeah, but what about him? And Jesus' answer to Peter, I, I hear for myself quite often, 
what are you doing looking at him? In a sense, Jesus is saying, I'll deal with him. I'm telling you what I want from you. It's up to him, isn't it? When we give our life to him, are we giving it completely over to him? Or are we still retaining some control that we want to make sure that our lot will be better than, or at least as good as, everybody else? Or are we saying, it's yours, Lord. I trust you for whatever. I'm yours to use, to lay aside, to glorify and, and, and give wonderful things to, or actually to endure hardship and suffering for you. Are we willing to even consider that it might involve any or all of that? I want us to not be short-sighted, but to live with the perspective of heaven, of eternity. I won't just say heaven, but of eternity, eternal life. <clears throat> and I'd love to leave you with this. It's a, this book, Jesus Freaks, is um, a story of martyrs right from like, medieval times through um, to very recent, 20th century, probably not 21st, but certainly 20th century. Um, this is a very short one because some of the testimonies are quite long, but they are powerful. This is a testimony and a poem. It's uh, a testimony by, of somebody called Jack Vinson, who was in China, and this is from 1931. The bandit told the missionary, it's Jack, missionary, I'm going to kill you. Aren't you afraid? Jack Vinson replied simply, Kill me, if you wish. I will go straight to God. I couldn't believe it when I looked at this video that we saw just now. And Bay, the lady there, described the hardship as being a shortcut to the Father. That is faith living with the perspective of heaven, the perspective of eternity. I'm going to kill you. Aren't you afraid? Well, Jack's Vinson, Jack Vinson's courage inspired his friend, Hamilton, to write this poem. Afraid? Of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? The strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid? Of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Saviour's face? To hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace? Afraid? that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart, darkness, light, oh heaven's art, a wound of his, a counterpart. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not, baptize with blood a stony plot till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that. I confess it's really hard where we live and when we live right now to, to accept that reality. That unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and re reproduces itself many times over. That in the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is, destroys that life. But if you let it go, 
reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. If any of you want to serve me, then follow me. The words of Jesus from the message. We are used to a relatively comfortable life. We're used to things going our way. We're used to being able to get out of trouble through education, through money, through working hard, through just things being just and fair and right, more or less, most of the time, here. But that's not the reality for most people. And in some senses, that dulls our senses. That makes us short-sighted. And we end up, church, living as if this is all there is, when it's not. And faith, a life of faith looks further, sees more clearly what is promised, even if we won't receive it right now. Yes, this life is a gift. It's to be enjoyed. It's to be cherished. It's to be used um, in the best way possible to bring about um, comfort and healing and wholeness to those around us, to usher in God's kingdom. But this life is not all there is. We need a perspective of eternity. And turn our backs on the quick fixes and the, the easy answers. And maybe COVID, and maybe the conflict in Ukraine, maybe some of the world situations around us are making us more aware of our frailty and of our vulnerability and of our mortality. Are we trusting God for our future, eternal future? Are we trusting God for the future and the eternal future of our children, our family, our community? You know, the Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a church about to enter a time of persecution. He wants them to grasp the reality. They can't necessarily see right now, but in faith they see. And they need to know what faith looks like. So, what does your faith look like right now? Can you confidently say, as the writer says, can you say of yourself that God is not ashamed to be called my God? Because that's what Hebrews 11 says of those heroes of faith. Not that they weren't ashamed of him, and they weren't, but God was not ashamed to be known as their God. Is that true of you right now? As we come to sing our final song, I would encourage you to spend time this week, if you're able, to just ask that question of yourself. What does my faith look like to others around me? What is my faith at at the heart? Is it just about my hope of being happier, being comfier, being things being more convenient? Or do I have an eternal perspective? Is God not ashamed to be called my God by the way I live, by the faith that I enact? Let's take a moment to reflect on that. Um, before we sing our final song together.